Great to see everybody. Great to be back with you. I am still infirmed, but improving. And uh, in case you are uh, new, maybe this year to the church, my name's Steve DeWitt, <laughs> and I pastor here. I've been uh, out of the pulpit for three weeks, and the reason is that um, December 29th, I went in for knee surgery on my meniscus, which is basically, I, I had the same surgery, um, a problem, I should say, a year and a half ago on my other knee, and I went in and had that surgery, and three days later I was walking and everything was fine. What happened this time was that the doctor got into my knee and discovered that uh, what I needed to have done was not the procedure that we were expecting to have done, but a different one. And uh, after I got out of surgery, it was explained that uh, the good news is, is that this procedure long-term will be better. The bad news is that it's going to hurt like the Dickens, and it's not going to improve. It's going to take a long time to get over. And I would just like to say I can vouch that this doctor is both a doctor and a prophet, because <laughs> he got it exactly right. It was... Uh, quite painful, and it just didn't seem to get better. I mean, just day after day, it was kind of the same. And so I, uh, I've had a little time here. It's been a little bit of a trial. I, had, I, I, I went 13 days without a shower. <laughs> You'll be happy to know I'm fully cleansed and clean now, but that was unpleasant. I slept 20 nights in a... Uh, reclining chair, which is lots of fun. But uh, this week's been better, and I'm in physical therapy now, which the, P, the T in PT should stand for torture, physical torture. Instead of physical therapy, it's false advertising, what they do. Uh, but I, I do want to just take a moment and uh, thank you. Many of you, I know many of you were praying for me, and I appreciate that very much. I got lots of cards and emails, encouraging notes, and I want to say thank you for, uh, for all of those. I also had a number of people that were, uh, brought meals over, and what a great thing that is. I mean, it's almost worth, you know, just having surgery so you can have people bring food over. They were delicious, and I want to say thank you to everybody who did that. One note that I got from a little girl in our church I thought was particularly uh, humorous, and so I thought I'd share the picture. She drew this for me. Her name is Faith Vanderlaan, and it was presented to me with the statement, this is a hibiscus for your meniscus. <laughs> I thought that was clever. <laughs> One thing that this whole experience has done for me uh, is that it has been a reminder to me of how important it is uh, to be there for one another when we are having these kinds of experiences. And some of you know, if you've had any, I've never had anything medically that put me on my back like this for any amount of time. This is my first time with something like this. And many of you have gone through these things, and I'm normally on the other side of it, you know. We have people that are all the time having surgeries and things that they're dealing with, and I'm on the other side of it. It's a different deal when you're the one laying on your back in pain. And one of my takeaways from this whole experience is that uh, we really need each other 
And when people reach out a little bit in a time like that, it means exponentially more when you're in a trial. And I, uh, I think sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, they're going through a hard time. We need to leave them alone. In fact, I had somebody say that to me. We just want to leave you alone during this. And I'll just tell you, when you're on your back in pain, you don't want to be left alone. You want to know somebody cares. You want to know that uh, you have friends in the world. You want to, and so I just, I just want to exhort the congregation. And I think we do this, I think this is, in my opinion, a strength of our church, although we fail many times. Um, but I think that to have a culture and a kind of way of relating to one another and helping one another in times of trouble is so very important. So I would encourage you to, when you hear that somebody's had something or something's going on, that you make the call and that you go and visit and that you uh, scoop their, their driveway of snow or whatever it is, mow their yard, something to show that you care because it means, it means a lot. I also want to thank uh, Pastors Brad and Jim, who the last three weeks have been bringing God's word. And I was here last weekend, was able to hear that, but I've heard from many people what a blessing that's been. And so thank you to those men. It's a privilege to serve with uh, such gifted uh, pastors. Well, we continue our series uh, that we've been in for some time entitled, I Met Jesus. And again, in case you're new uh, this year to our church, this is a series. Basically, what we're doing is we're looking at the Gospel of John and we're meeting people who met Jesus. And we're asking the question, what were they like before they met Jesus? And then what were they like after they met Jesus? And basically to look at that and to challenge our own lives and our own faith encounters with Christ through the gospel and to say, uh, what should we learn from what it means to have a real and authentic uh, encounter with Christ? And so we've talked about Nicodemus and the one with the well and the, the blind man and John the Baptist and others. And we're going to continue now uh, with a uh, this week and next with a new, a new bio, a new character. And I'd like to introduce it by asking a question. And I don't want you to raise your hands. But how many of you in your heart would say that you have failed God? And not just failed majorly failed and not just majorly failed colossally failed i mean i'm talking major failure and betrayal of the faith promises that you have made to god because on one level i think we could all we fail god every day we fail to live up to our faith promise to the lord our promise to be a follower of jesus to one degree or another every day. Most of us probably have some times where we would say that was a big failure. And because of that, I think that we often, on the other side of that failure, we wonder, can, I, can things ever be good between God and I again? Can my conscience ever be restored to the way that it was? Can it ever feel the way that it was before I had this big, bad thing that I did, where I failed God. So if you've ever had that kind of a failure, uh, this guy is the guy for you. And ironically, the guy, uh, the guy with the big failure is the most famous of all the people that ever met Jesus. 
He is in the list of disciples every time his name is number one. We're not talking about number three guy, number five guy, the number 10 guy. We're talking about the number one guy is also the guy with the greatest failure. And so class, who am I talking about? Peter. That's right. Peter. And so as we get into who this guy was, let's just start with a basic kind of bio of Peter. And there's lots about Peter in the New Testament, so we know quite a lot about him. Let's begin with his name. He's oftentimes called Simon Peter. In fact, John calls him that, I think, 15 times in his gospel, Simon Peter. But Simon was his given name, and yet he's known as Peter. This is confusing. It's kind of like when I was in third grade. The teacher, my teacher in third grade, her name was Miss Gum. And in fourth grade, I, she was my teacher as well, only then her name was Mrs. Sharon. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how does somebody's name change like that? It's kind of like that with Peter. His name is Simon, and yet he's all the time called Peter. How does somebody's name change? And the answer to that is that Jesus changed his name or gave him a nickname, and that is told in John 1. And here's what it says. He, this is Andrew, Peter's brother, brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Peter is a form of Petra. Petra means rock. So essentially what he's doing here is he is renaming Simon, he is naming him the rock, the strong one, the unmovable one, the rock, which is so ironically humorous in light of what we're going to see today because he is uh, anything but a rock. I think that uh, that Jesus gave him the name to inspire him to what he would need to be someday. And someday he would be the rock in a most dramatic way. His vocation... Peter was a fisherman, along with some of the other disciples as well. His home was, his hometown where he grew up was Bethsaida. And we have a map here. If you're going to be a fisherman, what do you need to live by? Water is helpful, but you need to live by fish, don't you? This lesson was learned by my dad, my brother, and I this summer when we went to the 10th best walleye fishing lake in the state of Minnesota and fished for three days and didn't catch one walleye. Water is great, but you really need fish if you're going to be a fisherman. And so he grew up there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He later uh, settled in Capernaum where he had a home, and that home, the ruins of it, is actually visible uh, to this day when you go to visit. His family. We know that he had a brother named Andrew, and we also know that Peter was married. There are many texts, uh, so I should say many, there are a few texts that talk about uh, Peter's wife and a couple that talk about his mother-in-law. So this is kind of ironic as Peter is the number one in the list and is the first leader of the church because in some circles, church leaders are not allowed to be married, which is kind of ironic in that the first great leader of the church was himself married. Further, in one case, Jesus uh, takes care of Peter's mother-in-law and heals her. 
And I know today there are many men in the room who wish that Jesus, Jesus would also take care of their mother-in-law, but exactly what they would like him to do, we ought not get into. And so we will not. The last thing that I want us to focus on is really the thing that is going to be uh, our message today, and that is the character quality of Peter. If he is known uh, for anything in terms of his character prior to Pentecost, it is that Peter was a very prideful, arrogant man and uh, had a tongue that had no bridle on it at all. Now, if Peter was here right now, he'd say, why are you talking about that? Because I have so many other wonderful qualities. And indeed, he did, just to highlight a few. He was a leader. He was the only disciple, when Jesus walked on water up to the boat, he was the only disciple that got out of the boat uh, in order to walk to Jesus. We'll give him some props for that. He was the very first to confess Jesus' true identity as the Son of God in Matthew 16. And he was close to Jesus. Jesus chose him to be in his inner circle. And if the Son of God says, I want to be friends with you, that's saying something. So there's a lot positive with Peter. But Peter was also a man of great inconsistencies. In spite of all of the positive, these uh, tremendous strengths also had devastating weaknesses. Peter was arrogant. He was brash. He was impetuous. He was domineering. He rubbed people the wrong way. There was no restraint on his tongue, and he was all the time eager to pronounce his own greatness to anybody who would listen. So this means that Peter was the one guy in the room that when he opened his mouth, everybody else sort of cringed because they, they never knew what was going to come out of Peter's mouth. Do you know people like this? Are you the person people are thinking of right now? You know what I'm talking about? Whenever their mouth opens... Children are good at this as well. Whenever their mouth opens, you're like, (sighs) that was Peter. He had the knack, the gifting to always say the wrong thing. One writer uh, calls him the apostle with the foot-sized mouth. And indeed he did. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Which disciple do you suppose was the disciple who refused to let Jesus wash his feet? Okay, that was not a trick question. (laughs) I've only been gone three weeks, and come on now. In fact, let me give you a little clue. All the questions today have the same answer. (laughs) Which disciple rebuked Jesus Which disciple decided to say something really stupid during Jesus' transfiguration? Which disciple, when he saw Jesus on shore, threw off his clothes, jumped in, swam furiously to shore, leaving the other disciples to fend for the fish in the nets? Peter. And which disciple boldly uh, declared before the other disciples and Jesus that the other disciples may fail Jesus, but he never would. Peter. In fact, that's the story, the part of the story that I want us to focus on today. And we find it in John 13, which you can turn there uh, if you would. And we're kind of stepping into the story. So very quickly, let me tell you where we are in the story. 
We are in the upper room. This is uh, known as the upper room discourse. Jesus is there with his disciples. They have celebrated Passover. It's the Passion Week of Christ. Uh, He is hours from being betrayed and arrested. And he's having his last sort of sacred moments with his guys. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. We'll stop there. The rooster crow, it was a time designation in that culture. It meant somewhere between midnight and 3 o'clock in the morning. It's already evening while they're having this, this upper room. So we're only hours before that. And Jesus says, within a few hours, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Now I want you to imagine with me, proud Peter, who's just made this boast, How does he respond to Jesus saying, oh, you think you're going to lay down your life for me? You're going to betray me three times within a few hours. Can you imagine Peter saying something like this? What? Deny you? Come on, Jesus. It's me, Peter. We're not talking about James or Philip. We all know what they're like. They're flim flam. I'm Peter, number one on the list. Remember who you named the rock? That's me. Come on, I would. You joking? Jesus, come on, seriously, you joking right now? I can smile. Because we know it couldn't be true. I could never do that. And you may think I'm kind of embellishing with that. And maybe I'm a little. But Matthew 26 gives uh, Peter's response a little bit differently. Though they all fall away because of you. And who are the they, by the way? Who's he talking about? The other disciples in the room who are hearing him say this very thing. Though him and him and him and him and him and all the rest of them, they may all fall away. But I'm here to tell you right now, I will never fall away. And what do you hear in that, friends? Bravado, hubris, pride. Everyone else may fail you, but I, the great Peter, Peter the Great, I will never fall away. Well, we'll see about that, won't we? So the story continues. Jesus finishes his time in the upper room. He takes his disciples down to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John. They go a little bit away from the other disciples, and Jesus begins to pray. Sometime after that, a mob makes its way towards the Garden of Gethsemane, led by Judas, and there's Roman soldiers and other authorities and leaders, religious and otherwise, and some other hangers-on who are kind of a part of the mob scene. They come down to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas walks up to Jesus, gives him a kiss to identify to the soldiers which one is Jesus, and there's a kind of scrum that suddenly happens as the soldiers go to grab Jesus. Guess which disciple thought this was a really good time to pull out the one sword they had and to take a swing at highly trained Roman soldiers? Was it Philip? 
Peter, that's right. There's only one answer to every question today. Peter. And even this is somewhat humorous, I think, because they have one, one sword and there's a Roman cohort coming their way. He says, I don't care. He pulls out the sword and the story goes that he swung the sword and instead of hitting a Roman soldier, which is probably who he should have been, you know, if he was going to save the day, he needed to take out one of the soldiers. He misses the Roman soldier and only manages to hit one of the servant hangers on who are part of the mob. And even in that, he, 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 he only nicks him in the ear. I see the Roman soldier seeing, because remember, what was his vocation? Fishermen should never be swordsmen, right? They don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers probably looked at this fisherman trying to act like he knew what he was doing with the sword. And I see him sort of snickering and going, look at that guy. It was not Peter's finest moment. All right, so here's what happens. We pick it up now in chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now, we don't know who that other disciple is. Probably John. Probably. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So I wonder, can you see this in your mind? They arrest Jesus. The the mob makes its way to Annas' house, religious leader, large house. And John and Peter, after first of all running away, they turn around and they start to kind of follow along, sneaking, looking through the bushes. Where is he? Where are they going? And they get up to Annas' house where there is a courtyard and presumably there is a gate. John apparently knows somebody on the inside, says he knew the high priest, and he pulls the string and he's able to get inside of the compound. And then he goes to the servant girl, the little servant girl at the door, who apparently was in charge of locking and unlocking, and said, hey, see that guy out there? He's with me. Can you let him in? And so now you have John and Peter inside the courtyard. Jesus is inside the house being interrogated. And now what happens? It plays out in a most dramatic fashion. Notice what happens. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. We find here Peter, a man afraid. Fear is kicking in. Minutes before, he has taken a swing with a Roman sword at at a Roman cohort of highly trained Roman soldiers. Maybe stupid, but at least some... Courage, maybe in that moment. Here we are minutes later now, and a little servant girl asks him if he's one of Jesus' disciples. We're talking about a little girl. In fact, I should probably, to give it the sense, I should read it this way. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, Excuse me, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? Do you see the contrast between the bravado in the upper room the sword in the garden, and now the fear at the gate? Even a little girl. He was operating according to fear. And by the way, friends, when we're living by fear, little things seem to be much bigger than they are. Have you noticed that? Maybe you're living in that right now. 
Or maybe at night you lay in bed and things get really big, as Wearsby said, the hours of the night are where every molehill becomes a mountain. They seem so big to us when we're living by fear instead of by faith. Denial number two. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Skip ahead now. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said, they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, notice the repetition, I am not. Now Matthew tells us that as they're standing there, it was, and warming themselves by the fire, that it was Peter's Galilean accent that tipped them off that he might be one of Jesus' disciples. So they kind of hear him saying something maybe to John, and they, it dawns on them, wait a second, the guy that's been arrested and is inside the house is a Galilean. And now here's a guy, we don't even know who he is, and he's got a Galilean accent. You don't suppose that he is secretly one of the disciples of the guy that was arrested, And you can kind of see, can't you, these guys, you know, big tough guys are there and they're kind of whispering to each other and kind of looking at Peter. And Peter's over there seeing these guys pointing at him and looking at him and finally asking him the question. He's starting to get paranoid. And he denies for the second time that he's a disciple of Christ. Again, how many hours has it been since he, he said before all of the other disciples in Jesus, I will give my life for you. We're talking hours. And now denial number two, that he's a disciple of Christ. And here's the third denial. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So apparently, there was a guy in the courtyard who, when the mob went to arrest Jesus, he was one of the hangers-on guy, just sort of following the mob, wanting to see what's going on. His relative was the servant who was a little closer to the whole thing, the very servant that when Peter swung and missed the Roman soldier, he cut off this guy's ear. And this relative looks at Peter, and while it was dark at the garden and it's dark in the courtyard, he thinks to himself, that guy sort of generally reminds me of the same guy that took a swing at my relative. And so he confronts Peter and says, were you not in the garden with him? Now, this is a strong accusation because if Peter is known to be one who took up arms against the authorities, he might be arrested right away because in the courtyard are the soldiers and all the others while the authorities are inside interrogating Jesus. And so fear piles on Peter. What would he do? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Now. Matthew fills in a little bit to the story. I'm sorry, Luke in Luke 22. Here's what Luke writes. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Friends, what we have going on here, this is masterful storytelling because you have a scene that's going on in the courtyard and you have a scene that's going on in the house. 
maybe like those split screens that they sometimes do now on television where two things can be kind of shown to be operating at the same time. That's what he's doing here as he tells the story. Something dramatic going on in the house, something dramatic going on in the courtyard. What's going on in the house? Jesus is being interrogated by the most powerful men of the day. He has been beaten at least one time, and they are accusing him of the grossest crimes. How is he faring there in the house? Perfect. Is he denying anything? Is he betraying anybody? Is he being found to be faithless? Is he being found to be courageousless? Discourageous, uncourageous, whatever the word is. No. Absolutely faithful and true in the house. While at the same time, his right-hand man is being asked by a little girl, excuse me, do you know Jesus? And he's wilting like a flower. Do you see the contrast? Which I think begs the question, why did the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, not just John, inspire the writers to include the story of Peter's betrayal? Because we don't really need it. We don't, we don't need it to have Jesus being the perfect Savior dying on the cross. We don't need it to have a clear Christology. You could take the whole Peter betrayal out of the story, and we still have the gospel. And yet, the Holy Spirit wanted Peter's betrayal in the story for us to read. Why? Well, I think the reason that he did this is that Peter's failures picture our weaknesses and highlights the strength and courage of Christ. Peter makes Jesus look good. Now, why do I say that? Well, I think because the courtyard and the house are a kind of parable of human weakness and divine strength. Just to show you as a comparison. In the courtyard, we've got Peter. In the house, we've got Jesus. What did Peter say? I will die for you. What did Jesus say repeatedly? I will die for you. But in the courtyard, we have fear. In the house, we have courage. In the courtyard, there is deception that's going on. In the house, there is truthfulness. In the courtyard, there is betrayal three times. In the house, there is absolute faithfulness. And in the courtyard, we have, ultimately, failure on a colossal level. But in the house, there is no failure. There is only divine success. And so, my friends, the point in this story is not that we read the story and we say, boy, I want to be more like Jesus in the house. And to feel like I need to sort of drum up human strength. I'm going to go out today. I'm going to try to be faithful like Jesus was in the house. I don't want to be like the betraying, wimping, weak Peter. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be like Jesus. If you walk out of here today, you have entirely missed the point. It is not that we strive to be like Jesus in this sense. Rather, it is that we are always Peter in the courtyard. Over and over and over again, failing our God. Why? Because we are sinners my friends and we we aspire to such noble virtue and obedience and godliness and yet what does our experience show us that every day that we live to one degree or another 
We are failing the Lord. And this picture of the courtyard in the house is there so that when we are in the courtyard and we are seeing our failures, it makes the one who is in the house so utterly beautiful and desirable and admirable and worshipful and followable. Why? Because he didn't fail once. He never has and he never will. Peter makes Jesus look good. So don't be like Mark Wahlberg. This week I read that or I heard that Mark Wahlberg, the actor, uh, declared that uh, if he would have been on one of the planes on 9-11, things would have turned out differently. He wisely, a few days later, retracted those comments and apologized profusely. But isn't that what we oftentimes want to do? We want to read ourselves into the story as the hero, right? Nobody reads the story and goes, oh, I see. I, I hope to be Peter in the story. I want to be Jesus in the house. I don't want to be Peter in the courtyard. We all want to be Captain America, right? That's me. But the gospel is not that we are the hero. And that's one reason so many people don't like Christianity. And if you are new to Christianity and you're new to this, maybe even here today, we're not here to stroke your ego and to tell you how wonderful you are. Because the gospel is not that we are wonderful. The gospel is that we are sinners. But Christ is wonderful. And so you see that, the courtyard and the house. We're Peter failing in the courtyard. But praise God, there is one in the house that is faithful and true. His name is Jesus. The second question I want to ask over this text is, why did God, why did Jesus take Peter through that courtyard experience? Or to ask ourselves, why does God over and over take us through courtyard experiences where we fail so miserably? Remember, what did Peter say? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus' response, will you lay down your life for me? We hear in Peter, I think, one of the problems that we all struggle with, and that is that we are overly impressed with ourselves. I didn't expect an amen on that, but just say it quietly in your heart. We are overly impressed with our piety. We're overly impressed with our spirituality. It's so easy for us to look in the mirror and to, uh, you know, to say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And to just know the answer is us. I am better than other people. The hubris, the pride of self-righteousness. And we see that in Peter. I will never fail you. These others, probably, but not me. I am better I am better than others. Carson comments on this. Tragically, the boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays not only gross ignorance of human weakness, but a certain haughty independence that is the seed of the denial itself. Scripture says this. He who thinks he stand, what? Take heed lest he fall. There is within human pride the very seed of our own destruction. When we admire ourselves, when we think we're all that, that very hubris is what leads to our fall. It makes me think of what the the captain of the Titanic said before they left on the fateful journey. Even God couldn't sink this ship. A lesson learned, I think, again here recently in, in our news. Pride, hubris, 
And then you have an ocean liner on its side. We're the Titanic. We're the ocean liner in Italy. We're Peter. All the time dashing ourselves on the rocks of our own pride. Why does God allow that? Why does God take us into the courtyard? And this might be one of the most important things I ever say to you. And I want you to listen. It is because in order for us to be used by God, he has to help us get over ourselves. To die to ourselves. And that does not come easy. In fact... Think of your prayers, our prayers. I'll include myself in this. Think of the, maybe the sort of the typical prayer that you pray in your heart. You would never pray this out loud because you would be terribly embarrassed. But quietly in your heart, when you pray to God in the morning, so oftentimes we pray prayers like this. Dear God, uh, thank you for this day. Uh, I pray today that you would grant to me good health. May my body feel wonderful. And I pray today that when I go to work, that everybody there will like me and that they'll think that I'm the greatest employee in the company. And I pray that when I come home tonight that my wife would realize how lucky she is to be married to me and that my children would call me the greatest mom or dad, whatever it is, uh, that, that in the world. And, Lord, I pray that um, maybe this week I could win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? We pray for all of these wonderful things, these blessings to us. Have you ever stopped to think about what if God actually answered our prayers? What would that turn us into if everybody thought we were wonderful and every day was sweeter than the day before? We would be megalomaniacs, would we not? We would think that we're all that. And so God, because he loves us, because he loves us, takes us into the courtyard to help us see the real heart issues within us. And at the core of the human heart is pride. And so we have these experiences that are utterly embarrassing to us. We feel shame. We see ourselves in ways that we're not proud of. But is there not a good a spiritual good that comes from that experience. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where on the other side of the courtyard, we find ourselves in a position of humility. We find ourselves in a position of contriteness where now we can be used by God because whatever he does through us, he's going to take the glory from it. And I wonder if you can look at your courtyard experience that way. In fact, maybe think about that a moment. What would be my courtyard? Or what courtyards have I had in my life? I think it was D.L. Moody who said, it is doubtful that God can use a man until he has broken him. So here's the challenge, I think, when the Lord is crushing us, when, we are, when our sense of self is being dismantled, is to realize that our God has deeper purposes for why he does what he does. His goal for us is Christ-likeness. It's not that everybody likes us. It's not that our health is perfect every day. It's not that our knee operates the way that it ought. His goal 
is Christ-likeness. And by the way, did Christ have to suffer? Even the Son of God suffered. And this was a good thing in the grand picture. And this is our challenge when we are experiencing this humbling, whatever it is, is to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. Why? What is God producing in his people? Here's some things that I think courtyard experiences do. It causes us to savor the gospel that God saves sinners like me. When the church is filled with people who think, God's lucky to have me on his team, and I'm here, Bethel Church, I am here. You are blessed to have me here. That's a disaster. But when we humbly recognize, you know what? I don't deserve anything. This is the grace of God. It's a sweet thing. Causes us to treasure his love and grace to someone like me. To marvel that God would use someone like me. Again, not that God's lucky to have me on his team. I'm lucky to be on God's team. To equip us to meet and help others in their humblings. When you've never been in the courtyard and you see somebody else fail, it's easy to look down your nose on them, don't you think? Oh, well, I would never do something like that. A servant girl. That guy will never amount to anything in the church. Peter, done with him. You'll never hear his name again. How easy it is to be that way. But when we experience those courtyard moments, it causes us to be compassionate towards other people in their failings. And the final one I wrote here is to help us eradicate our self-reliance and to replace that reliance with a dependence upon God. And that's ultimately what we need, isn't it? Do you remember what Paul said about his thorn in the flesh? It caused him to realize his own weakness. Therefore, he would boast in his weakness. And this is hard. And some of you right now are likely going through some kind of an experience where God is dismantling your sense of self. And what I want to say to you is that there is a place that we need to go. And we can know that we've gotten there when our heart resonates with what I'm about to say. And this is difficult because there are so many different kinds of courtyard experiences. There are ones where it's our own stupid actions that cause it. There are some it's where evil has been done against us. Some where people are talking bad against us. Whatever it is, here's when we can know that we've gotten to the place where God would have us. When we can look at that whole thing, not the thing itself, which may be evil, but to look at the fruit of it in my life and to say, that was good for me. This is Joseph to his brothers in Genesis 50. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. This is Job when he lost his children and he lost his farm and he lost everything. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is hard. But when we can see God working in our life as a result of even the evil thing, that is a good thing. And so I would encourage you to pray that God would help you to get to that point. 
I am confident that if you were to ask Peter, what was the most important spiritual moment in your life? He would do this. When I heard that rooster crow, it broke me. It devastated me. But it was at that moment that Peter was prepared to be the leader of the church. Because now he would be leading from a point of humility. And that's what God is doing in our life. He is preparing us to be servants that he can use. And that comes through trouble and trial and hurt. And I wonder if you can see it that way. Finally, praise God for 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might lift you up. Amen. Amen.